Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z, and this is our 107th episode. For this episode, I try to succinctly answer some frequently asked questions about the economic vision that I advocate, participatory economics, or PARICON for short, which some advocates like to call participatory socialism. The questions have been culled for many people over the years and recently. Question one is repeatedly asked by many activists concerned with day-to-day campaigns and issues. Why do we need vision at all, they ask. Why should we worry about the shape of a future society? Isn't it sufficient to reject current injustice and try to win change now? My answer. People throughout society know that activists want to escape contemporary oppressions. They know that we seek to win short-run aims like higher wages and end to a particular war, police reform, or free vaccines. But a great many people think that short of winning fundamental change, what all our fighting yields will be quickly unraveled. People doubt, that is, that short-term activism will lead somewhere desirable that will be stable and will last. I think that these questioners are correct. Such people therefore ask us our long-term vision, because without a desirable and viable destination, they find our calls to action unconvincing. They don't want to blow against the wind. The absence of vision impedes their relating to immediate efforts. I also like and find edifying Lewis and Carroll's Alice in Wonderland answer to this question. Carroll wrote, quote, One day Alice came to a fork in the road and saw a Cheshire cat in a tree. Which road do I take, she asked the cat. Where do you want to go, was his response. I don't know, Alice answered. Then, said the cat, it doesn't matter. So my answer is that we need vision for hope, we need it for insight, we need it to answer those who doubt possibilities, and also we need it for direction. Question two has been asked by many anarchists in particular, including many close friends. They ask, but doesn't proposing social vision overstep our possible knowledge? And doesn't social vision have to emerge from broad constituencies with lots of experience? What sense can it make for an individual or even a bunch of folks to be creating vision? My answer is, I agree that trying to foresee every detail of a future society would be seeking not only unattainable knowledge, but also useless, pointless, and inappropriate knowledge. But luckily, we don't need to know contingent future details. We just need to know what key institutions we want to attain and why they would work well for us. We just need to know enough so that the new social relations we create allow and even propel future people to decide everything about their lives as they see fit. We don't need to settle everything ahead of time. Indeed, we have no right to even think about settling everything ahead of time. We need to only settle on enough so that what we establish in overcoming present injustices will let people in the future, with more of their own experiences and with their own aims, decide the rest. That is our task, not more, not less. And yes, it is also true that to be insightful and to be acceptable, social vision has to incorporate the ideas of many people, with many backgrounds, and with much experience. So yes, it is true that we need to have ever wider constituencies test and refine social vision. When lone individuals or small groups initially offer some vision, and initially that is inevitable, since nothing arises simultaneously, initially, from huge numbers of folks. Their aim should be that larger groups take up the vision, refine and improve and perhaps even replace the vision, and only then, once it is worthy, whole movements adopt it as well.
But is it too soon to undertake, or to reinvigorate, vision building in pursuit of further refinement and finally sharing a new vision? I think not at all. We have centuries of highly relevant experiences by diverse constituencies to consult. Why shouldn't people call upon all that, and also on their own personal histories to propose vision that they offer for public debate, as long as they emphasize that it is presented to be refined and improved? It isn't too soon to do any of that. Hopefully, more relevantly, it isn't too late. Another question comes often in particular from folks who have encountered proponents of ideologies in a sectarian manner. They ask, but won't advocating a vision close us off to new possibilities and make us sectarian? Won't we advocate what we propose so tenaciously that we then miss new insights? And isn't a blueprint more than we need? My answer is, you're right. Advocates of change can become radical puppets to damaging and even suicidal political commitments scarcely less regimented than corporate puppets who mindlessly pursue market shares onto global suicide. But the solution to avoiding that kind of sectarian vision isn't to have no vision at all, just as the solution to having callous sex or unhealthy food isn't having no sex or no food. Like bad sex and bad food, we don't want or need bad vision. But the solution to being sectarian is to have our attitude to a favored vision be flexible and learning-oriented. Just like the solution to having callous sex or unhealthy food is to have caring sex and nutritious food, the solution to having bad vision, sectarian vision, is to having flexible and open-minded vision. The problem of mindlessly defending our views unto sectarian irrelevance afflicts us when we feel that to be flexible about our views denies our integrity. We should instead see that to be flexible about our views enlarges our integrity. To usefully analyze capitalist economics, or parliamentary democracy, or racism, or sexism as they are now, doesn't mean that we should detail and explain every nook and cranny of these dynamics. It instead means we should identify broad defining features and explain their properties and their implications sufficiently to oppose them effectively. Vision for a better future is similar. We don't need, nor can we remotely enumerate, every detail of a new economy or of any other facet of social life that we seek to transform. A blueprint of a new society is absurd. It is both beyond our means of knowing, and even more importantly, such details are for others in the future to decide. But we can usefully describe possible defining institutions that we find essential to achieve if we are to ensure that people in the future will be in position and will be able to decide their own fate. More, we can investigate the broad implications of those proposed institutions, and we can compare those implications to our aspirations to decide what we should now advocate. Another question, question four in this sequence, has come from anti-racists, feminists, and sometimes anarchists as well. Why economics? What about everything else? Doesn't pursuit of economic vision slight the rest? My answer, well, we need economic hope, orientation, and direction, and so we should produce economic vision. But we also need political, cultural, family, and kinship hope, orientation, and direction. No less than we need economic hope, orientation, and direction. And so we should produce vision for those other domains of life as well. I happen to work a lot on economics. Someone else might work more on kinship. Another person might work more on culture. And another more on polity. Pursuing economic vision while urging the need for and trying to promote other vision, and even to contribute to it, 
No more slights pursuing cultural, political, or kinship vision than pursuing any of those while urging the need for others would slight economics. Question 5 comes from folks sometimes at talks or in debates, though less often as the years pass. What's so bad about capitalism, they ask. My answer. Capitalism produces Herculean disparities of income and wealth. It pits people against one another rather than producing mutual accord. It relegates most people to obedience rather than facilitating people controlling their own lives. Capitalism isolates and alienates rather than generating mutuality and respect. Capitalism imposes war rather than producing peace. In capitalism, even where there is great abundance, many people live in cardboard boxes. Citizens roam streets with their limbs smashed and their minds hobbled. Capitalism creates subservience and indignity. It creates damage and death. All that is good in people's lives endlessly struggles to even persist against the imperial logic of market madness. What is bad is business as usual. Love, comradeship, artistry, and dignity become profit opportunities. Nothing is sacred. Everything is commercialized. People starve. Money doesn't talk. It swears. Evaluated by humane standards in capitalism, not only is almost everything broken, we all know it is broken but we have to get on with our lives anyway. Capitalism is a thug's economy, a heartless economy, a base and vile and largely boring economy. It is the antithesis of human fulfillment and development. It mocks equity and justice. It enshrines greed. And at the heart of capitalism reside structures that breed the indignity and injustice. Capitalist private ownership of workplaces and resources. Capitalist hierarchies of empowerment and disenfranchisement from economic decisions for most. Capitalist profit-seeking and its obscene disparities of wealth and influence. And capitalism's market-enforced rat race of each against all, in which human sentiment and solidarity are sacrificed to trying to avoid losing or to trying to defend winning. Capitalism sucks. Does anyone seriously want to contest that? The sixth question often comes from various socialists, and sometimes others as well. They ask, but why not advocate an economic vision we already have? Why not social democracy? Why not socialism? Why not anarchism? Why not bioregionalism? Why do we need a whole new logic with a new name, participatory economics? My answer. I agree that it would be easier if we could just advocate a familiar model, but I have found what you suggest as possible choices, each seriously insufficient or seriously flawed. Social democracy is capitalism with workers and what I call coordinators or managers, professionals, etc., made more powerful compared to capitalists. And indeed, the realignment of bargaining power, that is social democracy, can temper many of the worst flaws of the system and be part of a trajectory of change toward a new system. But it can't alone eliminate capitalism's defining flaws. And capitalism's defining flaws, even reduced in their impact, remain quite horrible. More, social democracy not only doesn't arrive at entirely new relations, its modest gains are highly unstable. They get undone whenever capitalists regain full power. Unless we desire only stopgap reduction of horrors, and I don't, we shouldn't advocate social democracy as our ultimate goal, even if we favor various short-run social democratic aims for the present. The problem with your next candidate for a vision that we might adopt, socialism, is that what socialism actually refers to is quite obscure. For some people, socialism just means good economy, or classless economy, or economy with justice and equity, or economy with self-management. And that's fine. 
I favor all that, but it is not a vision of how an economy can deliver any of that. I want those virtues in a vision, of course. But I believe that using the label socialism can often confuse people, because every instance of socialism that has ever existed, and virtually every formulation of socialism carefully proposed as a vision, has had attributes that trample, or that at best fall far short of the desired virtues. In actual practice, that is, and as a seriously specified model, socialism has meant public or state ownership of productive property, it's meant markets or central planning. It's meant corporate divisions of labor. It's meant income for power, or at best output. Few who have proposed a model called socialism have significantly deviated from these institutional features, or from social democracy. So socialism, as it has actually been specified and enacted, has more often than not been a class-divided economy that has inequality and subordination for most of its actors. The group that I call the coordinator class has repeatedly risen to ruling status in what has heretofore been called socialism. Some central ills of capitalism have certainly been reduced or even transcended, but new flaws have emerged. What has typically gone under the label socialism has said that public or state ownership of productive property, plus markets or central planning, plus corporate divisions of labor, plus income for power or at best for output, are central. And given that advocates of, of participatory economics reject each and all of these commitments, we see a need for a new vision. More, I have wondered, what sense would it make for me to use the confusing label socialism for what I advocate? Many socialists and some advocates of participatory economy reply, however, wait a minute, we think what we advocate is a new socialism. We of course reject the vile systems that have existed historically and that are touted in dingy old textbooks, but we call what we favor, which is also what you favor, participatory socialism. Okay, if such people agree that markets and central planning and corporate divisions of labor and remuneration for output all violate essential aims, and if they instead favor participatory alternatives, then we agree on substance, and I would only add that I still doubt it is useful to use a term that endlessly confuses nearly everyone else about just what our substance is. I get wanting to acknowledge, and even to be part, of the anti-racist, anti-sexist, libertarian, and anti-classist part of socialism. I just don't get doing that by risking confusion with the far larger, pretty racist, pretty predominantly sexist, nearly always authoritarian, and in every single case coordinator classist part of socialism. The above has been my reaction to saying we are for socialism for many years, decades actually. I have urged that we reject the models typically offered as socialist. I have urged that we propose a new vision. And I have urged that we don't confuse matters by appending the same old label to our new aims, thereby causing way too many folks to reject the new substance without even noticing how different it is. And then came Bernie Sanders. And suddenly the label socialism was at least somewhat retrieved from meeting status class-ruled models. Is the break that Sanders initiated enough so that advocates of a new economic vision can call it green socialism, or eco-socialism, or libertarian socialism, or participatory socialism, and in doing so, not have those who hear the label socialism confuse the offering with something we have all already rejected? Can the label socialism be used in one form or another, and in doing so, elevate the substance offered as so labeled into being carefully assessed? I still have my doubts, though I think that perhaps now there is some chance of that. Still, for purposes of this question, 
Participatory economics is not 20th century socialism. It's not market socialism. It's not centrally planned socialism. It is not statist, and more definitively, it is not coordinator class elevating economics. So we can't just pick an earlier socialist vision off the shelf to pursue. To go on with this question, next was mentioned anarchism, and anarchism is fine with me when it basically means people running their own lives or enjoying classlessness. When it means reducing hierarchy to a minimum. When it means removing structures that impose on people from above their involvement. But beyond that, I think there is no shared anarchist proposed system of institutions to accomplish production, consumption, and allocation in accord with anti-authoritarian aspirations. And in any event, just as there is a sense in which participatory economics fulfills the best aims of socialism, so too there is a sense, at least I think so, in which participatory economics is arguably an anarchist economic vision. But here too, if anarchists were to come to agree on this, I think using a more indicative and new label would still be important to add clarity that there is something new being proposed. The last option that was mentioned, that we might just pull off the shelf, so to speak, to adapt as our vision rather than trying to propose a new economic vision, is bioregionalism, which seems to me to be a kind of injunction that different locales should be as economically self-sufficient as possible, localism taken as a virtue unto itself, or as ecologically required with nothing much else indicated. I don't understand the logic behind this injunction, or even what its core virtue is. I do get that it intends to combat violations of ecology, which anyone sane has to agree is critical to do, of course. But while sometimes opting to produce locally for local use makes sense from the point of view of minimizing pollution and preserving non-renewable resources, other times it is better to have larger scale production, and to then ship the results to diverse places, even regarding pollution and frugal use of resources, much less regarding equitable access to desirable outputs. A good economy, it follows, a green economy, should make the choice about what scale firms should be, and whether they should be local, regional, or even national, not in some fixed and unyielding way decided a priori, be local always, or for that matter, be national always, but as conditions and accurate assessments warrant. I think the impetus of ecological activists worried about self-sufficiency and scale because they are worried about ecological effects of economic choices is essential and wise, but I think it is in fact implemented properly by participatory economics and not by bioregionalism. Question 7 arises from diverse sorts in various contexts. Okay, so what are the institutional features of participatory economics? My answer, participatory economy is defined by just five core features. First, there is no ownership of means of production. In a participatory economy, we'll call it a paricon, I own my shirt, my bicycle, etc., but I don't own the place where I work, nor does anyone else. The right to influence decisions about the place where I work derives from being affected by those decisions, not from ownership. Put differently, the natural and built means by which people create new products are all part of a social commons. They are not utilized for the private good under the auspices of a small group of owners. They are utilized for the general good under the auspices of all who are affected. Second, beyond eliminating ownership of productive assets, workers and consumers are organized into worker and consumer councils and federations of councils as the venues from which they contribute their efforts and their preferences to economic life. 
More, these councils apportion decision-making influence over economic choices in proportion as the choices impact the people who decide. To the extent possible, if you will be more affected, you will get more say. If you will be less affected, you will get less say. And this holds across the whole economy, and for production, consumption, and allocation. Third, the division of labor inside and among workplaces is changed to what are called balanced job complexes. Instead of 20% of the working populace monopolizing all the empowering tasks in professional and management type jobs, and 80% having only rote and obedient tasks in subservient disempowering jobs, in a participatory economy, all who work will have a mix of tasks that on average leaves each person equally empowered by their overall work, and therefore, and this is the point of the approach, fully ready to participate in economic life and decision making. There is still surgery, lawyering, engineering, and other skilled and knowledge-based and otherwise empowering work in the new economy, of course, and people would still learn to do these complex labors. But surgeons will clean or answer phones or whatever, as well as do operations. There is still drudge work, dangerous work, boring work in the new economy, just as there is still complex and empowering and enervating work. The change is that people do the disempowering labors and the empowering labors in a mix with an overall empowerment balance. That is, each job in this new approach is balanced to have a mix of tasks and responsibilities that in some convey average empowerment implications. Fourth, a participatory economy's norm of remuneration, or payment, is for effort and sacrifice at socially valued work. In a participatory economy, there is no income for owning property, for bargaining power, or for output. You don't get income for owning, for being more powerful, or even for being more productive per se. Instead, if a person works longer, she gets more. If a person works harder, she gets more. If a person happens to do, for some reason, more onerous or otherwise harsh labor, he or she would get more to offset that sacrifice as well as long, in each case, as the person is doing socially valued work. Fifth, in every economy, no matter the kind, allocation determines what is produced, in what quantities, distributed to whom, and with what valuations. In a participatory economy, this is accomplished by what is called participatory planning. Participatory planning, the fifth defining feature of participatory economics, is the one part that is complex enough to escape being easily briefly presented. It is a system of decentralized cooperative negotiation that arrives at relative valuations or prices that reflect the true individual, social, and ecological costs and benefits, which in turn inform decisions about actual inputs and outputs. The workers' councils, in light of their prior year's activities and final prices, propose and report the outputs they would like to produce and the inputs they will need to use to do so. The consumers' councils sum and report the proposed consumption of their members, plus the whole council's collective consumption, each in accord with anticipated income and prices. The information from the workers' and consumers' councils is processed in mutually agreed and transparent ways, and is fed back to the councils along with updated predictions of where prices will finally arrive when planning is complete. The councils next consider the new information, and they adjust and report their new proposals. Individuals and councils seek to arrive at socially acceptable outcomes that they desire, abiding the constraint that their proposals be consistent with prices valuations that emerge, 
which means that as consumers they abide their income budgets, and as producers they provide desired outputs without wasting assets. The back-and-forth process continues until a plan is reached. More, the rounds of exchange and refinement occur in context of additional features, which employ the same basic ideas in different contexts to reveal ecological implications and to address investment options. The claim for the here-only succinctly sketched and barely specified participatory planning approach is that influence from each actor is broadly in proportion as he or she is affected by the choices to be decided. Valuations are accurate for individual, social, and ecological implications. The plan arrives without undue delay at responsible and implementable agendas. Methods for updating in light of changes of tastes, needs, and availabilities as the year unfolds are easily undertaken, consistent with guiding values. Behaviors that are called force are not only doable and mutually agreed by all involved, but also accord with and enhance solidarity among the participants as the benefit of each depends overwhelmingly on the benefit of all. And finally, outcomes and behaviors support the logic and practice not only of workers and consumers' councils, but also of balanced job complexes and equitable remuneration, and thus of classlessness. That is a very big, multi-part claim, clearly. But the point is that the key institutions of participatory economics are just five, and are each and all designed so that there is no capitalist class and no coordinator class, but instead, so there are workers and consumers who, as able, work and consume and all enjoy the same opportunities and same broad conditions, even as they each do their own special labors, all without class division or class rule. The new institutions produce solidarity among actors. Each actor, to get ahead, has to behave in ways consistent with the well-being of others, rather than seeking to trample others' well-being. Instead of nice guys finishing last, even nasty guys have to pursue the social good as a means to attain private advance. The new institutions also produce equity. Each actor receives a share of the social output in accord with the effort and sacrifice he or she expends to help produce that output. There are no huge nor even dramatic differentials in income and wealth because there is no wealth or income for property, power, or output. You earn more only if you work socially usefully longer or harder or at more onerous labors. And in the large, the average quality of each person's job improves overwhelmingly only as the average balanced job complex improves for everyone. The new institutions also produce diversity. They honor and seek varied solutions and options by abiding the wills of the whole populace rather than only elite sectors. The new institutions arguably most originally also produce self-management. They accord to each actor, whether in workplaces and consumer units or via the allocation system, appropriate influence over each decision, from the smallest personal choices to the largest collective projects, and everything in between. The new institutions, in short, generate classlessness, sustainability, and efficient use of both human and material assets to meet needs and develop potentials. Each actor is free to pursue and fulfill their economic needs consistently with every other actor being able to do likewise. Question 8 is asked by suspicious minds, and rightly so. Why should we believe participatory economics would actually work as you claim? What should people be doing about it on hearing of this vision? My answer is, well, you shouldn't believe claims about Paricon just on my say-so, or anyone else's, of course. 
To become an advocate, you would need to look at the descriptions and associated arguments in more detail than they are offered here, and make assessments based on evidence offered and also based on your own experiences and understandings. If someone claims there is a cure for cancer, you should hope it is true. If the claim seems coherent, if it comes from sources who are serious and sober, if it begins to be challenged and debated and it holds up well, if it has some tests that seem to bear it out, you should start to assess the claim more thoroughly. The claim about a new type of economy is different than the claim about a cancer cure. However, in that a cancer cure will be very highly technical in all its aspects. To personally investigate the merits of a claim about a new cure for cancer will require intense familiarity with all kinds of scientific methods, concepts, and evidence. Most of us will have to rely overwhelmingly on highly trained people who focus very intently on microbiology and report their findings to us. But with economic vision, the visionary claim is at least largely about conditions we daily experience. We may initially hear claims from individuals who have spent more time on the topic. Sure, but there is no huge learning curve to ourselves than attaining valid and insightful opinions. It is not trivial to do so, but nor is it unattainably complex. Understanding participatory economics doesn't require massive training, nor does understanding it require extreme focus. If the Paracon vision is presented in plain language, anyone interested in comprehending its properties and assessing their merits should, with some modest effort, be able to do so. So to answer your question more directly, I think people who hear about the model, via interviews or short articles or a podcast or whatever, should hope that Paracon is real, viable, and worthy alternative to capitalism and to market and centrally planned socialism. Some will hopefully already feel like, hey, I'm going to examine the full presentation and its claims more fully myself. I'm going to assess them and perhaps debate them and refine them. If the first folks doing all that become advocates, more folks will then participate as well. Question 9 is raised by practical, serious activists confronting what we do now. Supposing we thought Paracon would work, what difference would it make? We can't win a whole new economy anytime real soon, so what difference does it make if we advocate a vision for a new economy or not? My answer. First, to do so would give us a positive orientation and provide us a means to overcome cynicism, not only in the broad public, but in ourselves as well. But I think you are asking how having participatory economics as an economic vision might impact our current work. Our activist choices need to not only oppose what is, but to build the consciousness, commitment, and infrastructure of what we desire to attain. In that light, in that light supporting participatory economics would engender many, many implications for how we talk about current injustices, and how we describe what we favor, as well as for how we organize ourselves to win the immediate gains we seek. For example, there would no longer be tooth-and-nail arguments about consensus versus majority rule and other such algorithms of decision-making. Rather, leftists would see that the guiding principle for decision-making is self-management, and realize that the different methods of decision-making and associated communication of information that people can choose among are just tools for attaining self-management, and that we should use different tools in different contexts. Having Paracon as a shared economic goal would likely also point us toward demands that increase participation and transparency and allocation, reforms like participatory budgeting and communal exchanges that move us toward and begin to prepare us for participatory planning. 
Having Paragon as a shared economic goal will also push us toward income demands that move toward remunerating effort and sacrifice. It would therefore influence how we talk about income and how we seek to arouse desires beyond immediate demands. It would propel us as well toward building worker and consumer councils and using them to form and pursue diverse agendas. In time, we would no more tolerate movement organizations that embodied corporate and market-oriented norms than organizations that tolerate or embody sexist or racist norms. Our organizations would come to have remuneration for effort and sacrifice, not for the relative power or credentials that activists have, nor for their productivity. And our organizations would come to have self-managed decision-making methods, and in particular, balanced job complexes rather than divisions of labor typically found in corporations. These would be immense changes in our attitudes and values and behaviors, even just regarding these quick few examples. We would also understand the importance of the interface between the coordinator class and owners above, and even more so between the coordinator class and workers below for how we should talk, for what we should demand, and for how we should organize ourselves. So, as noted earlier, the reason we need vision is not just to overcome cynicism, though that is very important, but also to provide insights that inform our choices now. There must be some way out of here, but it is very important that the way out of here that we choose doesn't lead us in a circle back to where we started, or lead us to a new system that is still a dungeon, even if it has new jailers. Pericon is conceived to help on all these counts. Question 10 is raised by people who look beyond the shiny package. You have been an advocate of participatory economics, sometimes called participatory socialism, for decades. Why isn't it better known? Why aren't there more advocates? Why don't your failures cause you to find a new project to pursue? In my view, these are very fair questions, and I wish I could provide fully satisfying and verified answers. I can't. I can only try to say something that might be useful. I do pursue various projects, but setting that aside, given that the Paricon vision hasn't attracted wide support, why don't I jettison participatory economics as a priority? One answer as to why Paricon hasn't won more support could be because participatory economics is simply nonsense. That explanation, which should lead to my and everyone else jettisoning the vision, is that Paricon is wrong. People don't assess it and become advocates because it is transparently nonsense. Indeed, in this reading of the situation, Paricon is so evidently absurd that there is no point spending any valuable time trying to evaluate its merits and debits. We have all heard about unworthy proposals like that. Such proposals are so ill-conceived that dismissing them outright and not even momentarily taking them seriously to evaluate them makes sense. So is that participatory economics. Paricon's published critics, which is actually only a very few people, would probably say yes, that is Paricon. Geez, Michael, let it go. But I am not convinced for a few reasons. First, the ideas that participatory economics advances are relatively few, relatively straightforward, and it isn't just that they make moral sense for what is sought, which claim I am unaware of any critic even questioning. They also seem to me to operationally hold together. If they are instead ridiculous, it seems to me that it ought to be a simple matter for critics to demonstrate the flaws. However, what criticisms have been rendered, sometimes by very well-informed and aware and creative people, haven't seemed to me, and to others, to even bruise participatory economics, much less to dent it, much less to bury it. Instead, they have seemed most often to barely even accurately note Paricon's few features, 
or to instead misstate them before rejecting what is misstated. They have seemed to dismiss, without providing real reasons, argument, evidence of any sort, it has seemed to be more just by fiat. There have been debates, in print and directly, and I think I and others have been more than open to not just hearing, but to welcoming critique. We have invited critique, and even given it visibility, and tried to find it compelling, in which case we would have to say, okay, we get it, the vision was a good try, but what else can we come up with? But nothing that has been offered has even seemed remotely that damning or compelling, at least to me. And as far as we can tell, everything that has been offered has been rather easily shown wrong. Let me try expressing this a bit differently. The participatory economic vision is ultimately rather straightforward. It has just five components. No private ownership, workers and consumers self-managing councils, balanced job complexes, equitable remuneration, and participatory planning. An argument against this vision, or really any vision, would have to demonstrate that what it attains should not be attained, because attaining it would be unjust, or would have disastrous side effects. It would have to show that what we say Paricon can do might be nice, but just can't be done. The vision wouldn't hold together. Or it would have to show that Paricon wouldn't deliver what it claims. People couldn't or wouldn't want to behave as it entails. Or, beyond what it proposes, the side effects would offset the benefits. Something like that. And such claims have certainly at times been raised by the few critics who have tried to seriously address participatory economics. So, some have claimed that Paricon would be a just economy, but an unproductive one, because it would have flawed incentives. Or, they say, participatory economics would promote self-management, yes, but offsetting that would be widespread dumb decision-making due to the participation from weak decision-makers. Or, they say, participatory economics would remove the basis for class division, yes, but at the same time, and for that very reason, it would also demolish quality and reduce output because it would demand of too many people what they cannot do well or even at all and would underutilize the people able to do those things well. Or, they say, Paricon would take too long to plan outcomes. It would have participation, but at the cost of too many conflicting agendas, too much time put into deciding economic outcomes. And the thing is, and you can, and I hope you will look at the debates and responses to all these claims yourself to see what you think, because for me, honestly, none of these criticisms have ever seemed to have any real significant weight. Their replies appear in many places, not least the early episodes of this podcast, Revolution Z, in debates available on ZNet, and many more. Indeed, the criticisms are all anticipated in book-length presentations of the vision, and our reasons for finding them uncompelling offered even before they were ever raised as part of the initial argument for the vision. I, and Robin Hennell too, I am sure, initially way back when first offering participatory economics, thought there would be at least some areas needing correction and refinement, which we therefore hoped would be raised beyond what we anticipated, or perhaps showing how our replies to the anticipated criticisms were wanting, so improvement could occur. But that hasn't really happened, not more than a very little bit. And I think the reason is on the one hand that the vision doesn't overstep into details, and on the other hand that the basics of participatory economics are so simple and so carefully conceived that it just hasn't had serious problems. Or maybe it is just that people have yet to seriously assess it. Certainly only a few have offered criticisms. 
Indeed, ironically, the criticisms from its few serious critics have all not only been answered when offered, but most often even anticipated and answered before being offered, with no one then who did offer them ever addressing their responses. So has it been that I and other advocates of participatory economics are simply too wedded to it, too vested in it, to see much less to accept the criticisms that others point out? I don't think so, but it is for you to judge. But taking it a step further, the other side of that coin is, if the vision is sound, if classlessness, equity, and self-management, as well as productive creativity and efficiency in the sense of meeting needs and developing potentials without undue waste, would all be incredibly enhanced by participatory economy's proposed features, then why aren't council self-management, balanced job complexes, equitable remuneration, and participatory planning widely advocated? How come, that is, if participatory economics would efficiently and equitably fulfill economic functions of production, consumption, and allocation, and would simultaneously take into account ecological, social, and personal effects, and would convey collective participatory self-management and create classlessness, well then how come it isn't a widely shared vision for life after capitalism? Well, one reason has nothing much to do with participatory economics per se. That is, there are no serious institutional visions for life after capitalism that are widely shared on the left. Resistance to or disinterest in all vision is a factor. Another reason is that the features of participatory economics aren't seen widely. It has been around a long time, yes, but the vision is not discussed in left media, much less in the mainstream. So it is less that people have assessed it and haven't gotten on board, and more that people aren't even aware it exists as a visionary option, or maybe perhaps have heard the name of something, but nothing much beyond that. I mean, think of a left activist, incredibly busy and committed. He or she reads diverse left literature, journals, magazines, websites, whatever, and never encounters serious mention of, debate about, or interest in participatory economics. Absent indication that it has some traction, why give time to it? Why pay attention? It isn't as if the person has assessed it, understood it, and decided it is unworthy. It is instead that the person just has so many things to do, and this never presents itself, never appears worth the effort, isn't directly on the urgent agenda of the next meeting or event, and as to longer-term importance, well, no one on the venues I pay attention to seems to care about it, so why should I? But in that case, why isn't it addressed in left media, in those venues? And what are the few who have heard about it, but who haven't taken it seriously or become advocates? Well, when assessing why I and others who have supported it, I take seriously the possibility that we have done so because we so much want there to be a viable and worthy vision that it biases our thinking. I wonder, though, do any of the critics, or those who just pass over it with a dismissive nod, or not even that much notice, ever consider the possibility that their past and current implicit or explicit allegiance to wide income differentials between coordinator class and working class actors, and to coordinator class members' supposedly superior decision-making wisdom and greater creativity for doing empowering tasks, bias their thinking. And as to media, the same question arises. Do few articles addressing Paricon, or reviews of books about Paricon, appear, even on the left, because it doesn't warrant attention? Or is it because such materials are often rejected because elements of Paricon are dismissed on the quite different grounds of coordinator class interest, and especially coordinator class habit? 
just as, for a long time, and to a degree even still, serious content about race and gender has been slighted on grounds of white and male interest, and especially habit. What can I say? Different strokes for different folks. There are no doubt many variables impacting the extent of interest in, discussion of, debate about, elaborations on, and then acceptance or rejection of, not just participatory economics, but other visions for economy, polity, kinship, and or culture. What about you? If you have listened to this whole episode, what is your take? Do you have a clear view of participatory economics? Is it such that you find Paricon eminently dismissible? If not, are you motivated to pay additional attention to the participatory economic vision and to debates about it, or maybe to read a full-length presentation, or even to take the online course in the new School for Social and Cultural Change to decide where you stand? If not, well, is it because you think having an economic vision is not worth the time? Or is it because you have another vision which you think better? Or is it because there is something you have heard about Paricon that repels you? Or what? If you have a little time for it, please feel free to write me at sysop at zmag.org. That's S-Y-S-O-P at Z-M-A-G dot O-R-G. And I will certainly reply as best I can. And that asked and offered, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.